Last week, as we turned to Jeremiah, we were shown the challenge of living by faith. Just a few chapters back in Jeremiah 31, God had made great new covenant promises. Amazing things that God had promised for the future. And Jeremiah had proclaimed those promises to the people, people of Judah and Jerusalem. Then in chapter 32, Jeremiah himself faced the challenge of living by faith in those promises. He was imprisoned within a barracks in the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem itself was surrounded by Babylonian troops. The city was under siege. It was a desperate situation. And the challenge for Jeremiah was, what are those new covenant promises worth to me? In this bleak situation, I've been preaching about God's promises. Am I willing to go beyond words and actually invest in what God has promised? Will I act in faith that God will one day deliver on his promises? And for Jeremiah, the answer to that question was yes. For him in his situation, investing in God's promises meant pulling out his money and buying a field. The field was outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was in land occupied by the Babylonians. So for Jeremiah, it was a genuine act of faith to buy that piece of land and then put the deed in long-term storage. The day Jeremiah bought the deed, it was utterly worthless. But it was an investment of faith that one day God's promises would be fulfilled. The Babylonians would be gone from the scene And Jeremiah's family would benefit from that land. And as Jeremiah made that faith investment, God provided encouragement for him. God's word came to him to build Jeremiah's faith. And that faith-building word continues in chapter 33. God repeats his promises of restoration for Israel and Judah after the exile. And he repeats another promise from earlier in this book that God will bring a leader from the descendants of King David whose name will be the Lord, our righteous Savior. Then in chapter 34, God repeats his promise that before those good things ever happen, there is first going to be judgment on Judah's sin. Jerusalem will fall to the Babylonians. And chapter 34 ends with a miserable example of unfaithfulness. We're told the people of Jerusalem made a covenant to free their slaves. Presumably this was a panic measure. They agreed to release the slaves out of desperation, trying somehow to get the Lord to deliver Jerusalem from the Babylonians, trying to twist his arm a little bit. But after they made the promise it began to look like the siege was going to be lifted. It seemed the Babylonians might be ready to leave. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem responded to that by immediately taking back the slaves they'd just released. The people showed a pathetic lack of faithfulness. And as Jeremiah puts this book of his together much later in his life, He chooses to include at this point an incident that happened a few years earlier. This book is intended to teach the generations to come. And so after the woeful unfaithfulness 
recorded in the second half of chapter 34, Jeremiah includes right after that the record of another incident involving a different group of people. And the contrast is huge. We're meant to see the contrast. Jeremiah chapter 35 gives us a lesson in faithfulness. If you haven't found that chapter yet, it's on page 798 in the church Bibles or 1237 in the larger print Bibles. We'll read the whole of Jeremiah 35. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites and said to them, drink some wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine. Because our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed. Everything our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jehonadab commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come. We must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions, do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you shall live in the land I have given to you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen. 
I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, you have obeyed the command of your forefather Jehonadab and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, shall never fail to have a descendant to serve me. This is God's word. And of course, the first thing we need to know is who were the Rechabites? Who are these people? Well, in this passage, they keep referring again and again to their forefather, Jehonadab. I would guess that name probably doesn't ring any bells for us. But if I mention the name Jehu, that might just ring a few bells. Jehu was possibly the most over-the-top leader Israel ever had. About 250 years before this, Jehu rose from being an army commander to be the king of Israel. And he brought chaos wherever he went. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. The writer of Kings tells us Jehu even drove his chariot like a maniac. And in his chariot, he rampaged around Israel having Baal worshippers slaughtered. Jehu is a very ambiguous figure if you read the account of his life because he was commissioned by God to carry out God's judgment on idol worshippers. But 2 Kings also tells us Jehu's own heart wasn't fully committed to the Lord. But what has Jehu got to do with the Rechabites? Well, Kings tells us that Jehu's right-hand man was Jehonadab, son of Rechab, the forefather of the Rechabites mentioned in our passage. Jehonadab must have had a pretty strong stomach because he rode in Jehu's chariot while Jehu drove around like a maniac. But unlike Jehu, Jehonadab's heart was right. His heart was for the Lord. He was passionately committed to the Lord and he was passionately opposed to Baal worship. And that seems to be behind these instructions he gave to his descendants. The commands that they weren't to drink wine or build houses or cultivate the land. Those are mentioned down in verses 6 and 7 of our passage. Now, drunkenness was tightly associated with Baal worship. And Baal worship was a big attraction for farmers because Baal was supposed to be a weather god. And farmers care a lot about the weather. So they're attracted to gods who might be able to control the weather. So Jehonadab's commands were not random commands. They were an attempt to help his descendants stay clear of idol worship. If you don't drink wine at all, you will not be able to join in with Baal ceremonies. And if you don't have any crops to worry about, Baal is less of an attraction. Baal's supposed power over the weather is going to be a lot less significant for you. So Jehonadab left these commands for his ancestors, the Rechabites, 
And for 250 years, the Rechabites have stuck to them, religiously. Now, it's really important for us to understand the rules the Rechabites lived by were not biblical rules. They were not sinful rules, not at all. But they were not part of God's commands to his people. God's law did not forbid drinking wine. It did not forbid farming or building houses. But the significant point for us is this. Their forefather Jehonadab had given those commands and the Rechabites had kept them for 250 years. It's their faithfulness that's crucial in this passage. It's not the particular form of their faithfulness. And down in verse 11, they explain the only reason they happen to be in Jerusalem at this point is because of the political situation in Judah. Remember, this incident took place before the siege of Jerusalem we heard about last week. But even at this point, things are bad enough that the Rechabites feel the need to shelter in the city for protection. They're there temporarily not because they have given up living in tents. So that's who the Rechabites are. That's their background. The next question is, how were these people received in Jerusalem? How do people look on them? These nomads who refuse to build houses or do any farming. They must have earned their living in other ways. Well, the Rechabites were almost certainly looked down on. They were second class. To sophisticated city people in Jerusalem, the Rechabites must have looked like a bunch of wacky eccentrics. Especially if they insisted on putting up their tents within the city walls or sleeping in the streets, which they almost certainly seem to have done. A little group of romantic or eccentric outsiders and they really were a little group. We'll see in a moment they could all fit in just one room. Tiny. That's the context for what we read in verse 2. God says to Jeremiah, Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah. So we know this is a different Jeremiah than the one we know and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalia, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites and said to them, drink some wine. At this stage, the temple of the Lord had side rooms that were not part of the worship area, and they were not just used by the priests. Verse 4 mentions a room used by officials. That means court officials. So these rooms were like executive suites in the center of Jerusalem. One commentator says, these were the chambers of the highest circles of Judahite society. They were in the very heart of the city. The people coming and going from these rooms would have been a who's who of Jerusalem. The celebrities came and went. 
from this place. And God says to Jeremiah, take the Rechabites there in full view of everyone, lead them into that exclusive area, and offer them wine to drink. It's a tempting invitation. And the main reason it's tempting is because this is an invitation to move from being outsiders to being insiders. To go from being viewed as odd bods to being included at the heart of city life. And sooner or later, you and I are going to receive an invitation like that. You and I will be given a chance to move from being seen as an outsider in this world or some group within this world to being accepted as someone who belongs. For the Rechabites, the invitation took the form of bowls of wine set in front of them. For you and me, it will be an invitation to set aside something about our Christian commitment. And let's be honest, people often view us as strange eccentrics because of our Christian commitment. Maybe we'll be invited to lay aside our commitment to honesty, integrity in our business dealings, our benefits claims. Maybe it will be our commitment to sexual purity. Could be any number of different things. Anything that's making us stick out in this world, anything that would allow us to fit in and be accepted if we just compromise on some area of biblical obedience. As I said, the Bible doesn't call you and me to live by the same rules the Rechabites lived by. But the point of comparison for us is that they were given an enticing opportunity to compromise. And you and I will be as well. It might come tomorrow, or you might already be in the middle of some dilemma where compromise would allow you to fit in. How did the Rechabites respond to the invitation they were given? Very simply, they say to Jeremiah in verse 6, thanks, but no thanks. We do not drink wine. And that was that. They showed a stubborn faithfulness. In verse 8 and again in verse 10, they tell Jeremiah, we have obeyed everything our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. And the implication is, we are most definitely going to continue obeying everything he commanded us. So thank you for the tour of these nice executive boxes, but you can show us out now. We have to get back to our tents. Eugene Peterson sums up their attitude like this. The Rechabites lived life not on the basis of what was current with the crowd, but on the basis of what had been commanded by their ancestors. Neither the hospitality of a kind host nor the customs of the city where they had come for sanctuary could distract them from what was essential. They were a commanded people. 
And that was far more important to them than fitting in with their new neighbors in Jerusalem. Now here's the thing. Jeremiah knew that very, very well. He knew it before he ever invited the Rechabites to the temple and presented them with those bowls of wine. He knew they weren't going to drink it. And God knew that as well. God knew this was a stubbornly faithful people. So the point of this exercise was not to get these people to forsake their way of life. The point was to show the people of Jerusalem how utterly different from the Rechabites they were. Think about Judah's situation. In world terms, Judah is a tiny place. It's microscopic when you look at the whole world. And the people of Judah are tiny in terms of their numbers. And think about Judah's faith. There's no other nation that worships an invisible God. Every other nation has a collection of visible gods. Idol statues in the shape of birds, bulls, and a whole lot of other things. Judah is tiny and always threatened by the bigger nations all around it. And Judah's faith is totally out of sync with those bigger nations. Can you see how in world terms the people of Judah are just like the little family of the Rechabites? The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, they look upon Judah as an eccentric people. They're weird a bunch of odd bods when it comes to their beliefs and their way of life. And those other nations have done the equivalent of what Jeremiah did to the Rechabites. Those nations have said to Judah, come in, come in. See what we have to offer you. Just join us in worshiping Baal or Asherah or Molech. Join in our sex rituals. Just loosen up a bit on those weird ideas that you have about one almighty God and about sex with just your spouse. Join in with us and we will toast you. We'll accept you. You'll belong finally. You won't be awed anymore. We've seen how the Rechabites faced a tempting invitation and said no thanks. But when the other nations made their tempting invitations to Judah... The people of Judah said, oh yes, please. And they said it again and again and again. Whatever they were offered, they took it. Whatever compromise was asked of them, they made it. And by doing so, they forsook God's word again and again and again. If we adapt Eugene Peterson's words, we could say the people of Judah lived life on the basis of what was current with the crowd, not on the basis of what had been commanded by their God. The attentions of their neighbor nations and the customs of those nations distracted them from what was essential, that they were a commanded people. So after the Rechabites leave the temple with their bowls of wine sitting untouched, God then sends Jeremiah out into the streets of the city. 
to tell Jerusalem what has just happened and to challenge the people of Jerusalem. What is that challenge? It's the challenge of commitment to the Father's Word. Look down to verse 16. Here is the punchline of the message Jeremiah is to preach in the streets. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. Literally, the text says, the descendants of Jehonadab have carried out the command their father gave them. Now, of course, father here means forefather or ancestor. But calling Jehonadab their father is a significant thing for God to do. Because who is the people of Judah's father? It's God. Back in chapter 31, God said, I am Israel's father. Referring there to the whole nation, north and south. God said, Ephraim is my dear son. Again, Ephraim is referring to the whole people. God the Father loves his children passionately. He loves them even more than Jehonadab loved his people, the Rechabites. God's commands are always for his children's good, even more than Jehonadab's commands. The people of Judah have much greater reason to obey their father, God, than the Rechabites did to obey Jehonadab. But Judah sat down at Egypt's table and Babylon's table and Assyria's table. They pulled up a chair and they drank whatever they were served. Idol worship, promiscuity, greed, child sacrifice, whatever our new friends are doing, we'll have some of it too. said earlier, you and I will be challenged in a similar way. We will be given a tempting invitation to fit in somewhere by disobeying our Father in heaven. It will come. So let's be ready for it when it comes. Let's make up our mind ahead of time to say thanks, but no thanks. And if the invitation has already come to you and you know that you failed, let's turn back to our Father for forgiveness. Let's commit that obedience to Him will be the non-negotiable center of our lives instead of what might be current with the crowd. And look finally at verses 18 and 19, where we find a surprising outcome to all this. The Rechabites are honored by God. This group of people have just blown it in terms of fitting in with idolatrous Jerusalem. But verse 18 tells us, Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather Jehonadab and have followed all his instructions and done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, shall never fail to have a descendant to serve me. 
We noticed earlier the specific commands that these people live by, not drinking wine, not building houses, and so on. Those were not God's commands. They were not wrong, but they were not required either. However, it turns out the Rechabites are also faithful members of God's people. They're Israelites, and alongside their unique and unusual way of life, they are faithful to the actual commands of God's word as well. Not only did they refuse Jeremiah's bowls of wine, they refused idolatry also. They refused the other kinds of actual sin that Judah was engaged in. Remember, their ancestor Jehonadab was faithful to the Lord. And his descendants have followed him in that as well. They've kept more than just Jehonadab's quirky commands. They have also followed his faith in the Lord. And when God says in verse 19, Jehonadab will never fail to have a descendant to serve me, that word serve is used of the priests in the Old Testament. That's how the word has been used in this book of Jeremiah. Now, the Rechabites are not priests, but God is saying to them, you will be my honored servants, just like the priests are. What God is showing is this. Those men and women who are willing to lose out when it comes to the acceptance of this world, they will enjoy a much more wonderful acceptance with God. They've turned down a place among Jerusalem's in crowd, but God says they will receive a place in my presence. And that's an honor which never comes to an end. This is so helpful for us to see. Because the people you and I are tempted to please and impress here and now by sinning along with them, it's highly unlikely those people ever will truly respect us. And even if they do, it's going to be a short-lived thing. The only acceptance that counts is acceptance with the living, eternal God. Jesus explained that when he said this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When Jesus spoke about the temptation to try and gain the whole world, Jesus knew what he was talking about. In our reading earlier in the service from Matthew chapter 4, Satan offered Jesus not just a bowl of wine, like the Rechabites were offered, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give you, Satan said, if you will bow down and worship me. Just take a knee, Jesus. Just for a second. Just this once. And you'll be in. You'll be on top. You'll be delivered from a life wandering the roads of Israel without a home of your own. You'll be delivered from the hard road your father has set out for you. Being ostracized, being persecuted, ending up on a cross. So just do it. Bow to me for a moment. Dip your cup into my bowl of wine and drink what I'm offering you, Jesus. Jesus said, thanks, but no thanks. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that's what Jesus did. His commitment to his Father's word took him all the way to the cross. Jesus refused the devil's cup. Instead, he drank down the Father's cup, a cup of wrath and suffering. That's what the cross was. It was a cup of bitter suffering. But Jesus did it because doing his Father's will meant more to him than anything else in the world. So Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. He's not asking anything from us he has not been willing to do himself already. And where is Jesus now today? He's risen, exalted to the right hand of his Father. He was faithful to God and he will be honored by God for all of eternity. The son who was faithful to his father even to death on a cross. It's because of Jesus that you and I can come and be welcomed ourselves as sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus paid for our forgiveness. He bought our adoption into God's family. And he calls us now to follow him as faithful sons and daughters as men and women who are willing to lose the acceptance of this world so we can enjoy something infinitely better, the acceptance of our Father in heaven. Will you recommit yourself to live for him? Will you come to him if you've never come and trusted in him before? Let's do that together as we sing Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow you.